You're listening to Finding Your Genius Zone with Dirk Novell. With the help of successful individuals across industries, Dirk breaks down the unknown parts of every vocation while highlighting the importance of finding a career where you can leverage your natural skills, passions, and interests. Now here's your host, Dirk Novell. Hi, everybody. This is Dirk Novell. Welcome to my podcast. On with me today is Jolena Karen. Thanks, Jolena, for coming on. Thanks for having me. So Jolena is coming to us from Colorado. And uh, just a little bit about Jolena. I met Jolena a few years ago. She's been with a friend of mine who's in the industry that I'm in, one of my favorite people, uh, Doug. And they're, they've they been together for, I think, 20, 25 years, if I'm right. 22. 22. 22. And three months and 12 days, but who's counting? There you go. That's, <laughs> I think, close to how long Michelle and I have been married. We got married in 2000, but it's about 20. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I really, really... Um, enjoyed getting to you know we have these little events where we go away and and a lot of times our partners and spouses come with and jolena was one of those i i really liked i when i first met her and she's very very deep and very intelligent and you know she's a healer and a teacher and there's a lot more behind that and i'm going to let her in her own words break that down but i've just i'm excited to have her on because i think she's going to provide a lot of uh, really good advice and um, just kind of a diff- give people a different lens about living their life and, and choosing a career. So Jelena, why don't you give us um, just kind of a, a version of what it is you do and we'll just kind of take it from there and, and, and go backwards a little bit. But if you met somebody for the first time and they ask you what it is you do, how would you respond? Oh, this is always an interesting question for me. So um, let me start with, most of the people who show up in my office are asking questions about relationships or about health issues. They're people who recognize from a health perspective that their mind has a role to play in what's going on in their body. And when they're asking about relationships, they generally have a sense that um, in a relationship, the other person is not just the problem, that they are, wherever they go there, they are they are also contributing to the problem. So they're generally people interested in personal development and um, self-actualization. So as a healer, my job is to work in the realm of the mind and what we are looking to heal or make whole is the story that a person is telling themselves about themselves and about the experiences in their lives. And then as a teacher, what I find so inspiring is to be able to teach a framework that allows people to take themselves on their own healing journeys so that they're not dependent on coming back to me might not be the best business model but it's what inspires me i get it so uh would you say i'm just curious when you work with somebody is it maybe a six-month relationship a 12-month relationship uh it, it depends on the issue i've had clients that have worked with me for years and they sort of pop in and out depending on what's going on with them. Um, I generally, um, a few months at a time is usually what people do with me. They get enough information, they get over whatever hurdle is stopping them at the time and then show up again when the next hurdle arrives is usually what happens. But I've also run um, uh, groups, women's groups and uh, that have gone on for years at a time as we go deeper and deeper into really unpeeling the layers of the onion, becoming clearer and clearer on who we are, what our dominant values are at any given time, what the conflicts in our lives are showing us about us and um, what all of those conflicts and challenges are illuminating about where our soul is calling us to go next. So do you work with men as well? Um, I do. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting. A lot of my female clients want to be in the women's groups. They want, they, they love working together and I have no problem um, bringing people into women's groups. It's not so easy to bring people into co-ed groups. Typically if I do a group for everybody, it's women that show up in greater numbers than men, but on my 
with my individual clients, my one-on-one clients, most of them are men. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes in these podcasts, like I kind of have an idea where I want to go, but a random question will pop in my head and I just ask it because it's natural. Um, You know, like my experience, like working with Joe Dispenza and even going to University of Santa Monica, which was a spiritual psychology curriculum, the majority of the people there were women and versus men. And I guess uh, just a real basic question is why is, why do you think that is? It's a great question. Um, I don't really know why it is. I mean, what I, what, what pops to mind is in our culture, we live in a very patriarchal culture. And um, I mean, think about where men typically will show up. What kind of conference are, are the men going to show up? And it's, and I know this is stereotypical, but typically business development, sales conferences, you know, anything about making money or doing well in vocation is typically going to be more male oriented or male dominated. And then you look at Joe Dispenza and work like that. That's very much about spiritual development. It's about healing. It's about introspection and, and that sort of um, more touchy feely, softer science, if you like, um, which traditionally has spoken more to the female or to femininity. Right. Um, So I think part of it is a function of this patriarchal um, culture in which we live. Um, Beyond that, you know, I, maybe women prefer to do things more in group. I mean, (laughs) think about, Hmm. I mean, think about when you go to the movies, like, you know, I certainly remember as a teenager being in the movies and somebody had to go to the bathroom and it was never just one girl going, getting up to go to the bathroom. It would be two or three going off together. Whereas I don't think men get up and go to the bathroom together. I think men are quite confident and confident to do things on their own. Yeah. It's interesting. Something of that. No, it is interesting. I also think about like what you're talking about, how it influences um, careers and what say Mm -hmm. men get into. And I don't want to, uh, you know, the language I've worked on my language over the years and never, I try to use I language, but Sometimes I mess up, but I think many men are chasing money, um, what looks good, uh, you know, you use patriarch, but I, I, I think there's something there that's, you know, it blends in with what this podcast is about in terms mm-hmm. of choosing life work, like that's in mm-hmm. alignment with who you are. And, you know, we talked a long time before I hit record and just about feeling safe to like pursue mm-hmm. something that might feel contradictive to say, a belief system you held that maybe your dad helped develop, you know, about money or whatever. So I think it's an interesting parallel. Mm-hmm. Um, I can won't, I say one more thing? That you just can say in my head. You anything, you, <laughs> anything you use, want. Thank you. Use the words safety and, and vulnerability was a concept that shot into my head right away. Um, you know, I was once um, asked to facilitate a retreat for a group of CEOs that were all part of a mastermind group. And um, they hired me and flew me down to Florida, supposedly to work with them for an afternoon of their multi-day retreat. And they ended up keeping me there for two and a half days. The reason that they brought me in was because they were part of a mastermind group in which um, the they were, they were in non-competing industries. And so the idea of this group was that they should then be able to open up and um, talk with each other and share ideas about where they were struggling in business and then pick each other's brains on how to over- overcome their problems. The challenge was that they couldn't open up and get vulnerable with each other. There was so much, there was too much fear of um, showing any sort of weakness, I guess, in their business or in themselves. So uh, they hired me to come and help them figure out how to be more vulnerable, be more comfortable being vulnerable so that they could actually help each other in this mastermind group. Now, women, I don't think have as much fear of being vulnerable in that way of speaking about the things that are challenging to, to them and opening up in front of a group. That's been my experience anyway. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I have funny, I've always, I got a lot of, 
I was in a fraternity and I was, you know, I was a, a, a smart ass and I was, but I was always the sensitive guy. And I always, and, and as I got later in life, you know, I realized I'm just very comfortable being vulnerable. Um, I am what I am. Like I, I'm not, you know, it's kind of one of those things like, this is who I am. This is what you get. And I've never had a problem with that. Um, but it's almost, it's not sometimes I think a safe place for many men to, to go, but it's an interesting thing we can talk about. Uh, before we get deeper down that road, just getting back to kind of being a healer and a teacher, people that are tuning in, listening, you know, for someone who's say coming out of a, they're getting a psychology degree and you are at Cape Cod, is that correct? Uh, not Cape Cod. Uh, Cape Town. Cape Town, Cape Town South Africa. South Africa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you had, a, you, I believe you got some additional schooling after that. Mm -hmm. You know, if you could take yourself back to that age, that mindset, what is like, you know, what, what is some advice you can give? I mean, cause you have a niche, you have a, a specialty, somebody that's coming out, that's interested in psychology, um, being a teacher, being a healer. Is there anything that you can think of that might hit home with them as far as advice? on, on choosing your line of work or getting into mm -hmm. something similar to what you do? Yeah. You know what I, the first thought that comes to mind is, um, there might not be a straight line to getting to where you want to go. Um, you have to, so to expect that you may, whatever you're doing right now, may be a stepping stone to the next stepping stone, to the next stepping stone, which is going to carry you closer and closer towards the thing that you really want to be doing. And I can, I can really only speak from my experience, um, which started when I was 14 years old. I read the autobiography of Carl Jung. And in it, he said somewhere that we cannot affect true healing until we reach the soul. So that lit something up in me. There was an inspiration that happened when I was 14 years old. And the question arose in me, how do we do that? How do we reach the soul? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Um, what difference does it really make? And how do I explain all of that to my nuclear physicist father? So already there was this, there was this um, intuition, this inspiration that came up with a knowing that I wanted to be able to teach. But I didn't, I don't think I could have even articulated that at the time. I just knew that, oh my gosh, here was Carl Jung and he was a psychiatrist. I wasn't, I didn't get into medical school, not that I tried. Um, so the next best thing for me was to go and get a degree in psychology. Now I knew by the end of that degree, I didn't want to be a therapist, not, but not a psychologist, not the way we were being trained. So I also got a diploma in film production. And my thinking was, well, then I'll go to London and I'll join the BBC and I'll have the BBC teach me how to make beautiful movies so that I can save the world by reconnecting them people to their souls. Well, I went to London and I spent three months trying to get into the BBC until somebody finally said, who the hell are you and what experience do you have? And don't you know you're supposed to be part of the union? At which point I said, to heck with it. <laughs> the world is going to have to figure out how to save itself. Because what I'd rather do right now is get on a boat and sail to the Caribbean and swim with dolphins. So I did. So I just, so I would follow these, these, these desires of mine. And I ended up on a boat sailing to the Caribbean where I swam with dolphins. But along the way, I met healers of different kinds. I either had something go wrong with me in a certain island where the only person who could help was a massage therapist from California or a chiropractor from somewhere else or a local indigenous healer. And so um, I watched myself be guided into experiences that all revolved around this question of what does it mean to heal? How do we reach the soul? You know, these, this thing that this inspiration that happened when I was 14. Um, and then from there, my, now ex-husband who was my boyfriend at the time got hit by a car in Antigua and so the only person who could help him then was a massage therapist or chiropractor from somewhere and she showed me how to work with my hands which led me into massage therapy neuromuscular therapy but all the time there was still this question of how do we reach the soul what does it mean to heal like I want to be able to affect true healing 
And But I went deeply into massage therapy years and years and years of being a somatic therapist, which led me into kinesiology. And again, when somebody said, hey, there's this thing called behavioral kinesiology, I think you'd enjoy it. There was something that popped up in me that said, yes, do it. And again, I went fully into that, became the apprentice of the teacher, traveled with her until that little niggle came of, yeah, but still not fully answering the question. And the next thing popped up, which was the Demartini method. And I've been in that world for 20 years because finally that answered the questions that I had been seeking to answer. So for me, it was, um, I, I went into the field. I knew I didn't want to be a therapist, but I still got my degree. And then I followed the next intuition, which took me into a bit of film production, which ended up taking me into sailing, which ended up taking me into somatic therapy, into kinesiology, finally into the Demartini method. And I built a whole first half of my professional life around following those intuitions. Now, then I got to a point of, you know, oh my gosh, I'm in my 40s now and all my questions have been answered and I don't know what I'm striving for anymore. And um, while I've been so focused on following the intuition or the little guidance of my inner voice, I wasn't really focused on actually building businesses and saving money. So, oh my gosh, now, you know, in, in midlife, suddenly things that had been inspiring to me in the beginning were no longer as inspiring. The questions that had been driving me weren't driving me anymore because I had the answers. And so I started to beat myself up, judging myself through the lens of an, a new and emerging value system, mm. right? Which sent me into a big spiral of identity crisis in which there was a lot of self-flagellation and what the heck have I been doing? And I've really messed up and I should have been doing other things. And what was I thinking? And so on and so forth, which was its own journey to navigate. And thankfully I'm on the other side of that. But if I look back at my younger self, you know, there are a couple of things. Um, I don't know that I would change anything to be perfectly honest. Um, I was very, I was, I was, I had a really high value on listening to my intuition and being guided my, by my inner voice. And when I got to the point of thinking I'd made mistakes and beating myself up, I learned a lot more about where self-flagellation comes from. And I learned to reframe my experience in a way that I could maintain a sense of gratitude towards me for being who I was all the way through. And if Joseph, Joseph Campbell's right, the adventure of a lifetime is to be yourself when everybody else is expecting you to be something different. I would add the adventure of a lifetime is to be yourself when you yourself are expecting yourself to be something different. Can you love yourself who you actually are? Now, I feel like I'm rambling past the topic of the question that you asked about what advice would you give? Um, I think the advice would be follow your intuition and know that it's okay to change, to jump to another stepping stone when a new stepping stone that is really speaking to you emerges. Does that no, help? It's great. You're, it, I love it. Everything you're saying. So don't ever apologize. Um, <laughs> you know, by the way, I really love Joseph Campbell too. Uh, the hero's journey is something I think about a lot. And sometimes mm -hmm. I feel like I'm, I'm going on it myself. And uh, mm -hmm. a lot of his words really resonate. Um, a couple things I want to get into, you know, and we don't have to get into in this order, but just the addicted to the identity and, mm -hmm. and, you know, that whole concept, which, you know, I think I battled with myself and maybe we can get into that. Cause I think, uh, you know, at a 26, 27, 25 year old, maybe they're not thinking like this. So maybe we can try to articulate, you know, people are coming out of school. They have an identity of themselves, a lens to which they think success is, and then they may choose a career based on that perception or that belief system. And, 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 you know, if you understand the addictedness to an identity that might not really be your true identity. I mean, there's something there that I want to get into. The other one is the Demartini, uh, you know, the, the modality that you've been very committed to. I like, I'd like to get into a little more about what that is and how you use that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I also just want to make a comment about, you know, uh, listening to your story and, and your intuition and your braveness. Um, I feel like that's, 
a gift that you had at a young age and awareness that maybe not a lot of people would have the strength to follow their heart and their intuition. And I guess I just maybe want to ask, you know, you did it. I think you were unique. Is there something that you can say to somebody that might feel like, gosh, she's brave. I could never do what she's doing. Um, my world would fall apart. My parents would disown me. Um, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll be on the streets in three years. Like, is there something, cause I, I think there's probably people listening that can't truly relate. There are some that can, but I think what you've done is, you know, a perfect example of being true to who you are. And I love to see more people fall in line. So is there something maybe you could say to someone that might be challenging that way of living or maybe doubtful that they could do that? Sure. <clears throat> it's funny to hear you describe me as brave when so much of me sees me as a scaredy cat. <laughs> um, um, so the question is, if there's something you want to do, how do you give yourself permission to do it even when it feels really scary? And when you're afraid you're going to disappoint the people around you. Yeah. And, and let me just give you a bait. Like mom wants me to be a doctor. My dad wants me to be an attorney. All my friends are moving to New York after grad school to go work on wall street. I hate finances. I don't want to be a doctor. There's too many lawyers. I just want to go write film scores for, for movies or, you know, I want to go paint and be in, you know, a painter in Africa. And, and like one of my guests is a world famous oil painter uh, of African wildlife. Like I, yeah. what, what is that kind of stuff? Like, um, you know, like those voices in your head, how, if you had that person in front of you, what would your advice be? Um, uh, find us a support system who will encourage you to do that. At least one person. You know, if I if I look at the adventures that I have sailing across the oceans several times and hitchhiking up the coast of South Africa and sleeping on beaches and being chased by a warthog and what have you in the African savannah, I would never have done those things if I was just by myself. And I don't know if this is just female or male. I don't know. But just I, I can only speak for myself, right? When I really looked at what made it possible for me to do the things that I did, what I saw was that I was generally in relationship with somebody who was braver than I was. And I got brave because of their bravery, right? You know, so um, find someone who will support you. It, it, one person who will hold, hold space for you to be brave and support you in that, whether it's a coach, a mentor, another family member, a friend, somebody that you admire, reach out to that person and ask them how they did it. You know, learn from, as John Martini likes to say, stand on the shoulders of giants. Learn from the people who are doing things that are similar to what you want to do. Um, I just did it through my relationships, my boyfriends. <laughs> it's great advice. Um, how about modality-wise? Like, you know, you referenced... D Martini, tell us a little bit. I mean, getting back more into people that are wanting to be a healer, a teacher, a, a life coach, whatever the 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 verbiage is. Like, mm -hmm. I want to get more into kind of what that day, that weekend, mm -hmm. that Monday morning looks like. You know, in terms of you know what are you you know a piece of pie and is eighty percent of your time doing Zoom calls is. I mean, what does that look like to do what you do? But also, I want to get into the modality that. Um, that you seem to be really uh, attached to? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's evolved over the years, obviously. Uh, the majority of my clients are one-on-one. -on -one, and if I look back over the last 20 years of what I've been doing, I've typically done one-on-one, -on -one, that like that's been consistent. And then throughout time, I've gone in and out of running multi-day workshops and retreats. Um, so, I would say 50% of what I do is actually working with clients. Now I'm talking as a solopreneur. Maybe 50% of what I do is working with clients and the other 50% is everything else. The, you know, the billing, the marketing, the setting up, the logistics of setting up events and so on. 
So um, because I'm a solopreneur and because I really value the freedom to spend time back in South Africa or wherever I want to be, and I value the freedom of being able to work from wherever I am, I don't want a big business. I don't, I, I, I've never wanted to be responsible for a lot of people on my payroll or anything like that. So, um, so I guess an important part of this is just knowing yourself and knowing where you're comfortable in life. And so for me, it's been very comfortable and satisfying to have a, have a relatively manageable small business in which I can spend half my time working with clients in the way that I want to. But the, the cost of that is having to do the other stuff, which I don't necessarily love, but it's what I have to do in order to do the bits that I do love. So maybe there's a piece here where we can combine some of the modality that I use with the actual, what does my day or my life look like? And one of the principles of this modality is that there's never pain without pleasure, right? And there's never pleasure without pain. And they come as a bundle. They're two sides of the same coin. So striving for positive without negative or gain without pain, gain without loss, um, profit without loss, um, is the source of a lot of suffering in people, right? You know, um, there, are, there are things out there, if you're struggling, then you're not in your bliss and you're not on your path, et cetera, et cetera. No, boy, all the pain that you, all the pleasure you experience, you're going to experience pain. The question is, as we become more integrated and understand these principles, the questions that we can be asking are, what forms of pain and pleasure would we most prefer to experience? And when we look through that lens, so when I look at myself through this lens, so I have the pain, if you like, of a relatively small business, but I have the pleasure of the freedom to work from wherever. And for me, that's a, you know, I could, I could put in a lot more work. I could hire people to build the business. To me, that would, there would be the pleasure of both serving more clients and making more money, but also the pain of I'm serving more clients and I'm having to manage more people. And that in my current value system has not been where I've wanted to play. So there's a, there's the principle in there is, you know, um, stop striving for a fantasy where it's going to be all good and no bad, all pleasure and no pain. Know that there's going to be both sides. Ask intelligent questions to help illuminate both sides of all the different choices you could make. And then choose the pairing of pain and pleasure that you think is most likely going to drive you in the direction of your highest priorities and do that. Yeah, I'm just thinking. So a question came up. So let's just say you, you met somebody that was really good on the P&L and the business stuff. That to me feels like all pleasure for you. If someone was, you were to offload that and it feels realistic. So, are, but that, but yet you're saying that you have to have both in the real world, but I'm wondering, I mean, like, I guess I'm not doubting what you're saying, but it, it feels like you could actually have more pleasure and less pain if you had somebody that could handle all those logistics, run the P&L. Uh, maybe a comment or two on that? Yeah. What are the pains that, that what, are the, what are the costs or the downsides of having somebody do that? Um, would be, um, you know, so what's the downside of making more money? You pay more taxes, you're more responsible to more people, you increase your lifestyle, do you really save more? It depends on your value systems. There's, there's, um, I mean, I understand that the vision that if I hired somebody to do the stuff I don't like to do, I can do more of the stuff that I do like to do. And yes, that's true, but not without also experiencing more challenge. So as long as I'm aware of that, then I may choose, I might look at, you know, so yes, I, I hire someone to do the business side of things and the things that I don't necessarily love doing, the marketing and so on and so forth. Um, great. So they get me more business. So I get to do more of what I like to do in business. But at what cost to the freedom I have right now to go for a hike with my girlfriend at 3.30 in the afternoon or go home to South Africa for six weeks or, you know, um, uh, 
go do things with Doug when he feels like doing things. You know, there's there's yeah. always going to be a cost to everything, and um, and and that's just that's universal principles. There's pain and pleasure no matter what we do. The more clear we are on who we are, what our highest values are, and we'll have to talk about what values really are. But the clearer we are on what our authentic values are, the more we can make decisions about. If I choose to hire a business person, I'll get all of these benefits, but at this cost, these negatives. And if I don't choose to hire a business person, then I have all of these benefits, but all of these costs. Which one of those pairings is going to really move me in the direction of what is highest on my values hierarchy? Then I can, I can choose to go either way. And the big thing in that sentence is I have choice. Yeah. Let's get into the values for sure. I, and I hear you, I, I might butcher this. So maybe you can help me reframe it uh, in, in a better way. But so if somebody's listening, I think what I'm hearing in a simplified version is, you know, suffering might be based off an assumption that this job is going to be all pleasure. And there's, but, but, but with, with good things come hard work, maybe some negative, there's good and bad. So maybe more of a realistic outlook or, um, idea, uh, you know, in terms of maybe, I don't want to say lowering the bar, but just being more realistic about, um, what you're getting into. And, and, you know, I think a lot of times with social media or whatever, people have these visions of, you know, like on reality TV shows about being a realtor. I had a luxury agent on a few weeks ago, who's one of the top in the country. And she was just laughing like, that's so not our job. There's, you know, I have to clean toilets and I have to do all these little things you never see. So maybe more of a, a reality check. Um, mm -hmm. But I think, I know that's a very simplified version, but I, I think a lot of people are coming out of school. Like I wanted to go right to the top. I wanted to expedite my success. I didn't want to sell long distance for AT&T. I didn't want to, you know, do all these menial task. I just wanted to kind of be that young guy that, you know, jumped to the front of the line. And I know that's not realistic or healthy. Um, so I had a hard time. I really struggled because the negative stuff I wasn't prepared for. I thought I could mm -hmm. bypass it. Um, mm -hmm. Again, I'm rambling. I don't want to keep talking about me, but um, the value, I want you to talk a little more about that. We were discussing that prior to hitting record. Mm -hmm. And I think that's crucial to people understanding and thinking about their life work. Absolutely. Yeah. The, to me, to me, I don't know how anybody does anything <clears throat> without a good understanding of value systems. So what I mean by value systems is not what is generally espoused when it comes to talking about values. So what's generally espoused is the idea that values are things like Freedom, honesty, integrity, generosity, et cetera, et cetera, right? Those are not values, in my opinion. Those are human traits. We all have the traits of generosity and, and uh, honesty and integrity and all of those things. And I don't think there's any person in the world who would say they don't value freedom. They value being entrapped or imprisoned. So that kind of thinking about values to me doesn't tell us anything about human behavior like values from an axiological point of view should predict behavior so what's more interesting is if you say well i you know have my have a high value on freedom the question that comes up for me is freedom to do what freedom to swim in the ocean and surf every day freedom to make money freedom to have children freedom to ride a bike across the world around the world to sail a boat you know freedom to what to write literature to watch pornography what you know like let's get real about what are you actually talking about so to me freedom uh, excuse me values are the things and experiences that you value enough to dedicate space time energy and money towards so there are things and experiences that your life demonstrates are actually priorities to you because you consistently dedicate your space, your time, your energy, and your money to them. So most of us don't know 
what our authentic values are. So we have injected values and we have authentic values. And the injected values are the values that we take in or that are injected into us by our parents, our peer group, our teachers, the authority figures in our society, our culture, etc. So we all grow up with these injected beliefs about what we're supposed to value, what we're supposed to prioritize, what is supposed to be important to us. And then we have our authentic value systems, our actual value systems, um, which will be evidenced or, or demonstrated by what we consistently do with our space, our time, our energy, and our money. And this gap between the injected value system and the authentic value system is where stress lives, right? So what we'll find is we'll start out trying to do the things that we've been told are important to us, but our inner wisdom will only let us go so far down that road and then it'll pull us back to our authentic value system, right? When we don't understand that it's actually our internal wisdom that is trying to guide us back to our authentic value system, this going off on a tangent and then coming back gets called self-sabotage. There is no such thing as self-sabotage. There is self-correction. And the correction is from going too far down a path that we've been told we should go down, the value system that we're supposed to live by, to coming back to what is authentically value, valuable to us. So one way to figure out what's valuable to you could also be to look at where do you supposedly self-sabotage? Like what were you doing and what did you go veer towards doing that felt more meaningful to you that's information on okay that's an expression of your value system so you know in an ideal world teachers would be trained to think about look at their children in this way parents would be trained to look at their children in this way and children may be encouraged to actually develop and pursue the things that are in alignment with their authentic value systems. But unfortunately, we don't live in that world. We live in a world where there is a, a value system of society and it gets very um, uh, forcefully enforced on children. Um, and we're trained in, to become, to, you know, to, to follow the herd and do what is expected, expected of us. So I feel like there was a question that you asked and I've sort of lost the trail of it as I was talking about value systems. Um, what was your question for me? I know there was a reason for where we were going with this. Well, no, I mean, we're talking the whole value uh, and, and how that might help somebody if they go through this exercise. I love what you're mm -hmm. talking about because I think that gap for me personally has caused a lot of stress in my life. And then, you know, going back to authentic is I've never really looked at it through a lens of self-correctness. Mm. I've, I've looked at it as self-sabotage or like I'm, mm. no, I, I, I was a very big producer in my industry and it got kind of lonely. And then I, mm. I it, you know, in a small pond, I mean, but I, I was, a, I was the top guy and I, I didn't like being the top, like I was nobody around me to, you know, get better from. And, and I remember joining this coaching group where I met Doug and then all of a sudden I was around these really big time and I liked it way better because I was actually growing and learning. But mm -hmm. I, I guess the stress though of like getting tired of running a race that, mm -hmm. you know, you don't necessarily want to win. You just, and I kept coming back to things like coaching, personal coaching, coaching my kids sports, farming my property. And I always felt conflict with it, but I also felt like it was part of my identity. So I feel like I can really relate. And I think that people, whether they're in their 20s or 30s or 40s, I think that's the beauty of trying to, um, you talked a little bit about the lens you're looking at, you know, whether it's the lens of the new direction or maybe your previous life or the mindset you had as a 25. And I hope I'm not rambling too much, but. The, the values from that drive you in the first half of life compared to the values that drive you in the second half of life. Yeah. And I think that's, I'd like, maybe you could elaborate a little bit about um, maybe not being so hard on yourself about how you lived your first 25 years of your life, but maybe looking at it through a lens of you did what you had to do and now you unwire 
you know, certain belief systems and peel back the layers, you know, like just being the whole self-sabotage thing, I think is it gets in the way of a lot of success and joy, uh, especially with careers. Yeah, it does. And it's maybe not the self-sabotaging, but the story that we tell around it. Mm. Right. So self-sabotage equals I failed equals I'm not good enough equals I feel bad about myself. Now I'm in shame. Right. And shame and shame shame is the hardest emotion for us to feel the second we feel shame i mean we're right back in the amygdala and where we most likely want to go is into blame right when we start feeling ashamed of ourselves and guilt and shame are two different things guilt is the guilt arises when we think we've done something bad to somebody else which is relatively easy to deal with you can go make amends Shame is the feeling that you are something bad, like you are a screw up, you are a failure. Like, what do you do with that? It's so painful for the psyche to feel that, that almost always what we do is project that out and blame someone or something else for the way that we feel, right? Psychotherapy is a great one for that. Blame it on your parents, right? Hmm. But it arises from a false narrative, in my opinion. It arises from a narrative that says, I should, have, I should have kept doing that. I should have kept being that person, you know, and now I didn't. I stopped. I self-sabotaged. I screwed up. I failed. You know, that is a false narrative. You went as far as you could with that value system. And here's the thing. Did I already say this? I can't remember if this was before we were talking or in this. Our, our value systems, our values are driven by our voids. So the bigger the void... And the more pain you feel with that void, the, the higher the value becomes for you to fill that void, right? So if your void is money, let's say, if you feel like you don't have enough money and there's, and there's pain associated in your mind with not having more money than you have, you're going to place a high value on going to make money. And at some point, you're going to get to a point where the void of money has been filled and so continue to, continuing to do the things that make you money, what's the point, right? You don't have the void that's driving the value anymore, mm. right? As soon as we fill a void, our value system will change. We never have to worry about running out of values or running out of voids. The, void will, the next void will always appear, right? Because the universe abhors a vacuum. The next void will appear and we'll start reorienting our lives to figure out how to fill that void. Now that requires something that feels like an identity change, right? So if you've spent the first 25 years of your career with a void on, the void was making money, which, and having a house and three cars and um, paying for kids' education or whatever the money, whatever you associated with the money, like once those voids have been filled, like after 25 years of focusing on that as, as a high value, suddenly, it doesn't feel as high value to you to keep doing the same kind of things. And so very often what happens is people go into, and this is midlife crisis, go into questioning, who am I? What is important? You know, and then we go into self-flagellation. We start judging ourselves, our, our younger selves, through the lens of the value system that is emerging. Right? Can you say that judge, again? Yeah. So we judge our younger selves through the value system that is the new value system that is emerging. Mm. Right. And so what we, so this new value system says, well, I should have valued spending time with my family. I should have, right. Because the new value system is I want to spend time with my family. So, and we judge everything through our value systems. This is why I think value systems are so key. They form the lens through which we judge everything, everything. So if the new value system is spending time with family, then you'll look back at your past self and think, you idiot, you did it wrong. You should have done it differently. You should have valued other things than making money, right? And you'll go into self-flagellation and beat yourself up. And all the, the, <laughs> the wisdom in beating yourself up, is it's actually part of what, it, it's an innate, there's innate wisdom in it in that you're trying to break your addiction to being the person who valued making money. 
So when we're trying to break an addiction to anything, we have to demonize it. We have to see more negatives associated with, with it than positives. So it's actually, it's actually an expression of your unconscious wisdom or your higher minded wisdom to go into self-flagellation um, because you're attempting at an unconscious level to break your addiction. I think there's a, there's a smarter, faster way to do it, which <laughs> is, um, I'm not going to go into the addiction protocol at all, but one of the things that I have found to be so helpful both to myself and the people that I work with that are struggling with this kind of identity crisis in midlife when value systems are shifting and it's not quite clear what the new value system is, but you just feel shitty or like you've done something wrong in the first half of your career. Um, what we have to do is go back and judge ourselves through the lens of the value system that was driving us back then. Right. So if the value system for the for those years had been build a career, put money in the bank, buy the house, secure the kids education, then the question becomes, well, how well did you do at doing that? Right. How well did you do at making money or building the business or being a loyal employee or, you know, reaching the goals that you set for yourself back then? And you're most likely going to see that that there's a lot to say thank you to yourself for for having been who you were. The more we can say thank you to ourselves for having been who we were, in other words, the more, and this is, to me, it's a process of functional analysis. Like, what was the function of being that person? How did it serve you? What did you gain from it? What were the benefits and the gifts of being that person? Like you're really, it, it, that is the practice of falling in love with yourself, of becoming graceful towards yourself. And when the more graceful we can be with ourselves or grateful towards ourselves we can be the more we keep our brain functioning from the executive center the more we keep ourselves in a state of greater inspiration rather from than from this place back here in the amygdala where we're in shame and guilt and self-flagellation I and mean, there's no creativity in that right so what we have to learn to do in midlife we have to understand value systems we have to learn to judge ourselves through the lens of the past value system in order to get grateful. And we have to watch for the sign, know how to watch for the signs of the emerging value system and then honor ourselves enough to reorient orient our lives towards that, you know, towards the new value system that is calling us forward. I love this. Okay. So I have to ask you this because this is for somebody that's starting their career my mind is going to, okay, then how do you create an authentic value system that's based off of the right stuff? And like, you know, <laughs> and maybe you don't know, like at 24, I didn't realize how important it was for me to have, you know, wake up with my, my kids, go to bed with them, coach them in sports. I've never missed a birthday, never missed a holiday. I didn't think about that when I was coming out of school. Like that to me is number one. Uh, and so part of me, I'm very grateful and I'm proud of myself for being such a, a good dad. And it's not like I'm doing this, but I, I really love being present. But a lot of kids and young adults are coming out of school with, you know, just different voices in their head. This value system is so crucial. Mm -hmm. I wish I could go back and really get... Um, you know, firm on what that would be, what would be your advice to someone younger that, you know, to try to create the right value system, the authentic mm -hmm. value system to launch them in the right direction? Okay, let me let me play with some of those words, if you don't mind. Yeah, please. It's not about creating the right value system. It's about honoring your, or your authentic value system as it exists. Okay. So we come into the world with value systems. Right. Babies have value systems. They have preferences of and it, it goes, we can go back even further. I said our values are arise from our voids. We can link that to the innate um, preference in our physiology for pleasure over pain. Right. So babies come in with preferences of what they what they think brings them pleasure and what they think brings them pain. So we all have value systems right from the get-go. It's about it's a, it's about um, knowing how to honor our value systems. And unfortunately, I mean, let me let me say what I think the problems are, and then we can get to how do you address that. Um, 
you know, I think of a friend of mine whose kid, right from when he was little, uh, was fascinated by cars, absolutely fascinated by cars. He he could tell you the makes and models. He loved race cars. He could tell you the drivers and had the top speeds and all this stuff. But couldn't add two and two together, couldn't sit still in his seat at school. I mean, how many, I'm mean, sure, sure a lot of people relate to this. And of course, was was diagnosed with ADD, right? Um, so kids that are diagnosed with ADD, generally also attention deficit disorder. If you look at them, they will also have attention surplus in certain areas. So the thing to be looking at is where do I have surplus attention? Like what, what do I, what do I get up and do that requires no external motivation? Right. For this kid, it was cars, anything to do with cars, magazine, he would get up and read magazines or, or rush to the TV to watch races or whatever. For other kids, it's video games. Now, what does the world around us, those kids usually do? That's wrong. You shouldn't spend so much of your time playing with cars or playing video games. You should do mathematics or something else, right? So but the message for parents, if you want to raise kids who are able to live in alignment with their value systems, is look at what the kids are naturally drawn to and support them in doing more of that. Mm-hmm. And then this is a goes back to a question you asked earlier link learn to link the things that you don't like doing to the things that you do value so and i'm jumping around a little bit here parents parents need to learn to do this for themselves and then teach children to do this you were talking about being a young 20 something year old and not wanting to do the grunt work you wanted to just jump to the top right if you had been that 21 year old and you had a system where you could sit down with a piece of paper and write out all the ways in which doing the grunt work was assisting you and moving you towards the thing that you really wanted to be doing, you would have struggled less. You would have suffered less with the grunt work because you would have seen it as being a stepping stone, something that was helpful getting you going in the direction that you wanted to go right if we can't if we can't make associations or links between the things that we're supposed to be doing and we just you know we're just constantly in a state of oh god i hate doing this i don't want to do this you know that's a very depressing way to be whereas if you've taken the time to actually write out a list of 25 ways in which this thing you don't want to do is actually helping you move in the direction of where you of the thing you do really want to do next, then what arises is gratitude again, gratitude in you for this thing. I love it. I'm just thinking, I mean, it's so spot on because all the things I was doing, I remember I was at a company, AT&T, and I met the the big wig and someone introduced us and said, you have to meet Dirk. He's going to be somebody like he's really move it. And I, in my mind, like, no, you don't want to meet me. I'm, I, I have no interest in being you. I don't want to go up the corporate ladder. I don't want to play the game. And I remember like, I feel like I'm an I'm imposter. And so like looking at all the grunt work, like I didn't really want to go get to where it was going to lead me, which was the problem. Cause I didn't mm-hmm. have any, you know what I mean? So it's like, that's mm-hmm. so crucial. Cause like, if I was in the right direction, that was in alignment with, and that's what, I mean, the genius zone is a lot of what you're talking about when you're in your flow, what lights you up. I think I would have thought of the, the grunt work differently. I just was mm-hmm. running a race that I didn't want to win. So how long did you stay in that race? A long time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And at some point it got to the point where the, all the things that that particular job were providing, the, the, the value that drove you to, stay in that job the voids had been filled the void values the voids had been filled right yeah and so it absolutely made no more sense to stay in that job so you stepped onto the next stepping stone if you could go back what i would suggest is going back and looking at that job and all the things that you thought were negative all the things that you could write on a piece of paper that were negative about that job balance your perception equilibrate your perception with all of the things that you gained from that job, including, well, the money, 
whatever that was, the people you met, the skills you developed, um, the doors that it opened for you, et cetera, et cetera. I imagine that you would get to a place where you could actually see that there was wisdom in everything that you did. Yeah, I think so much of it was the definition of success was my dad's. And I didn't realize it until later in my life that it wasn't mine. Like I worked for Mark Cuban, who, you know, if you know who he was, and all yeah. of a sudden he sells it, you know, we sold our company to Yahoo and he makes billions of dollars. And I just thought that was normal. And I'm like, okay, I need to make a billion dollars someday like Mark. And I think I was just kind of um, in a world of not, it wasn't reality, you know, it was just a really interesting time in our, in our economy. But um, I want to ask you something about, uh, do you think we're addicted to having voids? Are we addicted to having voids? Uh, I think it's the nature of the game. We cannot not have voids. Okay. Right? I mean, if we look at, if we, I mean, all of this model is based on cosmology, right? Um, you know, the, <laughs> If we go if we dare go here right like most the sort of common thinking about the origin of the universe is that there was nothing and then there was a big bang but there's a there's a theory beyond that which says there was not nothing there was a cosmic vacuum and from the get vacuum everything emerged and so everything was contained within the vacuum and from the vacuum everything emerged life only keeps going because of voids right um, growth happens, or another way to say it is growth happens on the border of, of chaos and order. There has to be some chaos to propel life. It, it just, it's, it's part of our nature. We're always going to have voids. If, if we get to a point where we say, I am completely full. In fact, there was a professor in South Africa that I, the, the story was retold by my Afrikaans teacher when I was at high school. And she said that this man had said to her, may emerkias no fall, which meant his bucket was full. He died within a month, right? When our buckets are full, when there is no more question that is interesting to us, no more void of an answer that to something that we're seeking, then there's no, we will cease to exist. So there will always be voids. There will always be voids. What we what we get addicted to is pleasure over pain. Hmm. I think we could keep going on and on. I know we're probably getting close to the finish line, um, and I'm fascinated. I mean, I I think you could help me. Um, <laughs> I, I just think you have a lot of a lot of really uh, interesting ways of thinking about things that I haven't thought of as far as like, just Jolina Karen is your website, right? And mm -hmm. as far as yeah. taking on clients, I mean, are you taking on new clients or are you kind of maxed out right now? No, I'm taking on, on clients, you know, as I said, people sort of cycle in and out okay. um, with me. So, you know, I, there's pretty much always a void that I can fill. <laughs> Cool. I get mm -hmm. it. Um, anything like you want to say, again, getting back to the, the gist of this podcast, as far as educating people on the life behind a career and then just reinforcing, you know, the importance of being in your flow and how that might translate to liking life more and having more joy and success. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you want to leave the group or the audience with? Yeah, I, I think um, coming back to to me, the most important thing that we have to understand are value systems. We have to figure out what our authentic hierarchy of values actually is. And so that's the first piece is know, know your values, um, know what your authentic values are. And again, not freedom, honesty, blah, blah, blah. That's not it. What are the things and experiences that are actually meaningful to you as evidenced by how you're living your life? how you're spending your space, time, energy, money, get really clear on that. Um, and then the, what follows that becomes the question of, of how do I do more of the things that are authentically meaningful to me? And what you're going to bump up into is conflict. You're going to bump into the, um, the fear of disappointing people around you or letting yourself down, letting your, letting go of an image of yourself that you thought you were supposed to be working towards, et cetera. You're going to, you're going to bump into that. 
identity crisis is part of identity growth. You know, it's like a, sh a snake shedding its skin. At some point, the snake gets too big, the skin has to go. As, as we get bigger and bigger and more clear on who we are, the skins of these identities that we've taken on or personas that we've taken on become too small and they have to go. So um, know that that's going to come up. It's, you know, uh, being self-aware does not make life easier. It makes us more responsible to actually being authentic to ourselves. Um, so I, I would recommend um, first get clear on your value system. Know that as you orient your life towards living that, there are going to be some challenges and seek, seek out people who can support you through those challenges, whether it's a coach or um, a therapist, a uh, coach probably, um, or friends, mentors, people that you admire, make those relationships, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants, let their wisdom inform you and carry you towards where you want to go. I think that's what I want to say. Would you also say there's fear of success? No, I think no. that's a, I think it's a misnomer. And what we really fear is not success, but we fear the, the pain that comes with success. So success sounds great right it's like it's like you know back to the conversation we had earlier of you know if i brought on somebody to do the business side of things and i could get to do all of the talking with clients and doing the things that i want to do um but that has its own set of challenges that come with it you know as we grow a business as, as an entrepreneur grows a business um they appear to be more and more successful right but they're also having to put more and more systems in place. They're having to manage people. They have more demands from more customers. You know, there's, there's no pleasure without pain. And some part of us already knows this. I mean, I, what I hear from people all the time is, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. Why isn't anybody else talking about this very much? And I get that response of this makes so much sense because somewhere inside us, we already know this, but we have been sold a fantasy that we're supposed to be able to have positive without negative, mm. right? Gain without loss, right? We've been sold that fantasy. And the fantasy works as a creative agent, and a creative stimulant. Like we have to imagine that we're going to experience more pleasure than pain by doing something or we wouldn't do it. So we have to have a fantasy to keep us moving to some degree. But the wisest people, I believe, if you look at the Stoic, if you read Stoic philosophy, um, you know, the wisest business people, they all know that you never go into a business venture without listing out all of the costs. Like, what are the downsides? What are the, what's the pain going to be um, that I'm going to have to pay in order to realize the pleasure? So having this equilibrated mindset, recognizing that there is never a positive without a negative and they come simultaneously and then getting smart about identifying all the different sets of pains and pleasures and aligning them to your authentic value system. To me, that's the formula for success in anything, relationships, business. Health, yeah, I keep wanting to cut it off because it's just gold, but I, I just keep asking. <laughs> so the, where I was going on that though is when like being addicted to an identity and, and an identity, let's just take a young man who's unhappy and blames his dad for a lot of his unhappiness in his career. That's safe, maybe safer than not. Like if you don't have that identity, then it's maybe scary to think about who are you if you are successful and you forgive him and you don't use that as an excuse anymore. The idea of, being successful might seem scarier or because you don't have um, that attachment to an identity that served, maybe hasn't served you, but it's been with you so many years in your life. I guess that's where I was going is because I feel like safety is something we all crave, or at least I crave. Mm -hmm. And when I find myself changing, it's sometimes exciting, but it's also sometimes scary. Exactly. So you got both going there. Tony Robbins talks about the six drivers, human drivers, I think. And the first one is safety and the second one is novelty. So they're totally paradoxical. And we need both, which is chaos and order, right? We feel safe when, there's, when we perceive order and we want the excitement of the chaos of not really knowing exactly what's going to happen. 
and we need both, right? But we live in a society where we're a little more addicted to, well, to one side or the other, usually to play to the pleasure, whatever we perceive as pleasure. So yeah, there, you're absolutely right. You know, we hold on to the stories that we're telling ourselves because they are the stories that make the most sense to us of our world. Mm-hmm. And to be unable to make sense of our world is very scary, right? It's confusing and confusion registers in the brain as fear, right? And again, this is the thing about personal development work, like really, really being on a path of knowing yourself and living authentically. The scary part of that is that the thing that has to go is blame. We become 100% responsible to ourselves. Like I am 100% responsible for every single story that I tell myself about what I'm experiencing. And sometimes I just want to bitch and sometimes I just want to fall apart. And sometimes I just want to be the victim and have somebody put their arms around me and tell me they're there. It's not your fault. It's some other idiot's fault, right? That there were moments when absolutely I just want that. And I give myself those moments, by the way, because I'm human, right? Mm -hmm. And I also know that that is an arc of a story that I'm going through. And then maybe just give me a breather or give me, you know, some sort of connection maybe with Doug. Um, so I don't feel quite so alone in this world. But then I come back and like once I've got, once I've got that void filled and I no longer feel scared and alone and I come back to, okay, what is this saying about me? What is the story that I just created telling me about my value systems, what parts of me I'm not loving and where am I not honoring myself? and living authentically with what's truly meaningful to me. Yeah. I think that's a great way to end this. Uh, So much there. And I mean, a lot of it goes right into what I'm trying to do in terms of create more joy in, in people's careers. And I think it starts with, a lot of what we talked about. So Jolena, thank you so much for coming on. Um, you were awesome and I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, I, anything I can do to share this, I know how it's transformed my life um, in so many ways and I'd love to share it more. So thank you for this opportunity. Okay, thank you. Thank you.